Well, hey, good evening, Fathom uh, Academy Online Week 2. Welcome. Uh, I, I'm Pastor Chris, uh, the pastor of Fathom Church, uh, if, if, if you're a guest with us. So good to have you tonight for week two of this series uh, on Christian theology. Uh, Ryan Tafalowski, uh, one of the instructors at Denver Seminary, good friend of mine, uh, will be running the, the, these classes. If you missed us last week, you can you can catch up uh, online, fathomchurch.org slash academy. I'll just commend that to you to kind of stay with us through this series. But uh, today is week two. Uh, week two, we are going to be covering, uh, still kind of in the, the category of the doctrine of God, we're going to look at the attributes of God. Who is this God who we worship uh, and love? And so so this is going to be a, another rich time. Again, I will commend to you the, the chat room. Let's jump in there. If you're watching this live with us, let's, let's kind of dig in. And Ryan and I will uh, be addressing those questions in future videos. So so feel free to jump in there. Again, I'm just going to start with prayer, and then we're going to turn it over to Ryan. Father, once again, we, we come to you. We bless you. We love you. We're thankful for uh, the, 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 the opportunity to uh, dig into theology together, into doctrine together, into who uh, you are and the study of, of you. Thank you for giving us minds and ha having revealed things to us that, that, that would help us understand you. Thank you for these revealed things. Lord, we pray that this drives our hearts to worship you more as we study who you are, your attributes tonight. Bless Ryan as he as he teaches, uh, and Lord, deepen us in our love for you. Lord, we pray all these things by, 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 in the name of Jesus and by the power of uh, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thanks a lot, Chris, for that introduction, and I am so happy to be back with you guys here at Fathom Academy in week two, where we're going to be investigating uh, the so-called attributes of God. What is God like? Uh, who is he? We've established that God reveals himself to be triune. So I hope that this week, I hope two things for you. I hope that the headache has started to subside from all the thinking we did about what it means to talk about three persons sharing a divine essence and yet being one God. And I hope number two, that this week you've at least found time to pause and, and reflect on the fact that the triune God uh, delights in you and has invited you into his life a life that is characterized by overflowing uh, joy and love. Uh, it's a, pr a pretty striking thought. So I hope that you can rest going forward in the fact that uh, the God, uh, the trying God delights in you. He loves you. And so uh, with that, I want to talk this week in our time together about theology proper. I mentioned last week that when we talk about the word theology, it uh, has a few different meanings. And one of the most narrow meanings it has when we talk about theology proper is the doctrine of God, the father. We're going to be exploring a little bit about uh, God, the father. Although, as I'll mention in a moment, all of these attributes that I'm going to describe today apply equally to the son and to the spirit, as we've established in talking about uh, triune theology that to speak uh, about the Father is God and the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and they all share divine essence. And so they all share uh, a divine character as well. And so what we're going to do um, in our time together is we're going to talk about what are called the incommunicable and the communicable attributes of God. Now that's a mouthful. Here again, we have some more technical terms, but I'm going to hope to explain what we mean by those and why it's important that we distinguish between them, uh, the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. So uh, hang on to those terms and we'll unpack them in our time together. Um, 
And we're going to do it uh, this evening in two parts. In part one, I'm going to talk about the incommunicable attributes of God. Part two, the communicable attributes of God. So here, uh, you know, we, the terms incommunicable and communicable might uh, leave us with kind of a sour impression because uh, the, the only other context we really use these words is in the context of diseases. Uh, but actually, if that framework is helpful for you, uh, it actually explains what we're talking about fairly well. The incommunicable attributes of God are those things about God's character that he does not share with his creatures. All right. The communicable attributes are those attributes that God does give a share of to his creatures. So we are created in the image of God, which means that we have the capacity to reflect and exercise some of the same character traits that God does, although in a much diminished and different way. So that's what we mean by communicable. God shares that part of his life with his creatures. But incommunicable are attributes that belong solely to God alone in which uh, have no analog in the experience of creatures. Uh, for instance, we can't even approximate what it might uh, mean to be omnipotent, for instance. These are things that make God God and make us creatures, right? So let's see if we can make sense of them together. Now, before we jump in, I want to give just a few definitions because we have to get some of this technical work out of the way early unless we're, uh, so we can make sense of what we're talking about here. Uh, a little bit, just one word uh, quickly on the terminology. Attributes are essential characteristics of God's being. What I mean by essential here, it's a fairly technical philosophical term. What we mean is these are characteristics that if God somehow stops exhibiting them, he ceases being God. Uh, or if I could turn it around, these are the things that make God what God is. Um, and so another to use the same example of omnipotence, if God is not omnipotent, then whatever he is, he is not God. Uh, one clarification here, they are not actions that God performs or roles that God fulfills. They are, uh, they are essential characteristics of who God is. And this is really important because as I'm going to make, uh, as I'm going to say later on in our time today, um, when we are thinking about God, we are not thinking about an abstract principle. Okay? We're not talking about a nameless force, and we're not talking about uh, a sort of energy or anything like that. That's all impersonal language. And when we're talking about God, we're talking about a person. God reveals himself as having a name, and his name tells us quite a lot about what he is like. Okay? Uh, another clarification about uh, the applicability of these terms, each attribute that we're going to talk about uh, applies fully to each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. I already mentioned that. Um, but just keep that in mind. Uh, it is not as if the God is omnipotent, that God, the father is omnipotent, but the son is not, or that God, the father, uh, can't change, but the son can, uh, it applies equally and fully to all three persons. All right. So let's jump in. Now the place to start our discussion of the character of God, uh, for this evening is going to be Exodus chapter three, verses one through 16. Uh, and this, of course, is the story of Moses at the burning bush, where God reveals his name to Moses. In fact, uh, it's the place where God reveals his name uh, for the first time to anybody, his proper name, Yahweh, I am who I am. And those of you who were here a couple months back as we were promoting the course may remember that I gave a talk in Fathom on Sunday about this text, Exodus chapter 3, uh, which is a rich theological text that tells us all kinds of things about what God is like. And I want to meditate on this passage just a little bit together. 
before we jump into our discussion of the attributes of God. Uh, you may recall in this story that uh, Moses is kind of out in the wilderness. He's kind of minding his own business and he sees this bush or this tree uh, that is burning, but it's not being consumed by the flames. And he goes, well, that's interesting. Let me turn aside and look at this thing. Uh, and as he's starting to approach, the voice of God comes and says, hey, don't come near here. Okay. Keep your distance. This is important because it tells us that God is holy. And uh, brothers and sisters, it's not popular to think about God's holiness in these terms, especially in our cultural moment. But I need to emphasize that in the, in the Old Testament in particular, but actually all over the place in scripture, God's holiness is presented as absolutely terrifying. Okay. We've grown really comfortable with the idea of waltzing right up to God. Uh, we, we actually stumble into our churches probably on a Sunday morning without the expectation that we're going to meet the living God in any sort of real sense. Uh, but let me tell you, to encounter God is a frightening thing. And we know this because everyone who encounters God in scripture is very nearly undone. You could talk about Moses here. You could talk about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, where he finds himself in God's throne room and he goes, woe is me. Uh, I'm toast, right? I'm, it's curtains for me. I am uh, a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. In other words, my utter sinfulness makes me unfit to be in the presence of God's holiness, right? And something similar is going on here with the burning bush where God says to Moses, essentially, hey, keep your distance and know your place because I am God and you are a creature, okay? And so uh, from a distance, <laughs> right, uh, Moses says to God, okay, uh, you want me to go down to Egypt? You want me to tell Pharaoh to let uh, the Israelites go, release them from slavery? Fine, uh, but they're going to ask me who sent me. And when they say to me, what's your name? What shall I tell them? Now, Moses's question itself is very important here because it emphasizes that uh, Moses is asking God a personal question. He's asking God a who question, not a what question. He's asking, who, uh, who should I say sent me? which means that God is a person, not a thing, not an object, not a force. And so when we talk about the attributes of God, we are talking about personality traits, uh, not properties, right? Objects have properties. This music stand has properties, right? These chairs have properties. Now, I don't know anything about science, so I can't tell you anything uh, about those properties, but property is, uh, properties, that's a language that we use when we're talking about evaluating objects. As I mentioned last week, God is not an object, God is not such that we can go up to him and handle him, right? The burning bush tells us quite a lot about that. And so uh, God answers Moses' question and he says, my name, you want to know my name? My name is I am who I am. And actually, if we're being technical about it in Hebrew, uh, the tense is future. I will be who I will be. What kind of answer is this? Well, uh, the theologian Michael Allen might be able to help us here a little bit. He says, I am who I am prevents com uh, comparative analysis. God is qualitatively different from all other beings. That's a really helpful explanation of what's going on in this passage, and I'll try to unpack it a little bit. God saying, I am who I am, is another way of saying, the only thing I can compare myself to is myself. So God is saying to Moses, look, I am so radically unlike anything that you know that there's no category that you have for understanding me, okay? So the only way I can tell you who I am is just to say, well, I'm me, 
right? There is no comparative analysis to be done here. And Alan says, makes the point that God is qualitatively different from other beings. That's important too. Let me just make a note here. Uh, there's a difference between qualitative analysis and quantitative analysis. Quantitative analysis measures things that are on the same scale. So here's an example. As you may have read in my bio for Fathom Academy, I am obsessed with the Denver Nuggets. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, and I liked them when they were terrible. I have always loved basketball since the time I was a little kid. I'm still looking in, like trying to get in to the NBA. It's always been a dream of mine. It's looking more and more unlikely as I get into my mid thirties, but uh, I'm not giving up hope yet. So I love basketball. I love to play basketball. So on one sense, in one sense, in a very literal technical sense, which is perfectly correct, I am a basketball player. I am a thing that can play basketball. LeBron James is also a basketball player. Okay. We are the same kind of thing but we have a qualitative, uh, sorry, a quantitative difference between us. So I'm on this scale, uh, end of the scale down here, very bad at basketball. LeBron is over here, but we're still the same sort of thing. Theoretically, if I got much better, I could get closer to him because we're on the same scale. What Alan is getting at when he says that God is qualitatively different is that God and human beings are incommensurable. What that means is we can't be measured on the same scale. So it's not as if, uh, if I get a lot better, if I get more wise and good and, um, yeah, compassionate that I move up the scale closer to God's being, that's not how the attributes of God work, right? When we say that God is good, we mean that he is good in a way that is qualitatively different than the way that you and I are good. Okay. Uh, and here as English speakers, we're at a bit of a disadvantage because we use the word good, for instance, to describe nachos and to describe God, right? God is good. Nachos are good. That makes it seem like there's just a quantitative difference, but there's a qualitative difference. God is a different species. If I could put it that way, that's not perfect language either, but we are utterly unlike him. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the incommunicable attributes. So these are these elements of God's life that he does not share with creatures. We have no analogous experience of these attributes. Uh, and the most foundational thing to say about God uh, when it comes to his attributes is that God is spirit. This is all over the place. John 4, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, or Paul says in 1 Timothy, uh, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever. Uh, God is spirit. Now, you and I live after the scientific revolution, an intellectual movement across the seven, 18th and 19th centuries called the Enlightenment, which has sort of duped us into thinking that the only things that are real are physical and tangible things. But the Bible doesn't think that way at all, actually. For the Bible, things are actually exactly the opposite. God's spiritual being is actually more real than anything we experience, okay? Now, this, uh, as, as I say, requires a radical reorientation of our thinking. Uh, spirit does not, e does not equal not real. It means actually the most real, right? So God is spirit, which means that he is infinite, right? Uh, infinite is one of those terms that is hard for us to describe. So I will illustrate it by it's opposite, which is finite. Human beings are finite, which means that we are limited. Okay. We are constrained. It's not sinful 
It's not good or bad. It just is what it is. We are limited beings in what we can do. Uh, it means that we are dependent on the world around us for our life. It means that we are frail and it means that we uh, have limitations to everything we can do physically, intellectually. God is not like that. To say that God is spirit means that he is completely unbounded, if I can put it that way. There are no constraints except God's own character. I'll talk about more of uh, that later. Uh, so, uh, just a quick point here, because you're going to come across all these, these passages in the Bible all the time. God is spirit, although uh, he does uh, manifest himself in physical terms from time to time in the Bible in a couple different ways. Number one, anthropomorphisms. Those are analogical images that we use to describe God with reference to a human uh, or another creature's characteristics or behaviors. So when we talk about the arm of God being mighty to save, we're not literally saying that God has an arm in any physical sense. We are just using the only categories that we can imagine to express these sorts of things. And the Bible is full of anthropomorphisms. Um, and even what Thomas Aquinas called anthropopathisms. And what he meant was sometimes God is expressed as having emotion, which suggests that he feels and acts in the same way that we do which again is not the case. We are just using human images to make sense and to describe what God is doing. And we must always know that these things are imperfect, right? Uh, the theologian Paul Tillich, a 20th century theologian said that God is always more true than our speech about God. That's worth keeping in mind, all right? So even when we describe God through these anthropomorphisms, we should not imagine that we're saying anything ultimately true about God's essence. We're only describing it. Uh, theophanies are other examples where God, um, yeah, in a temporary and an empir empirically perceivable way takes on human form. Uh, I mentioned one last week, actually, God wrestling with Jacob uh, in physical form. That's an uh, a theophany, right? A temporary, uh, temporary moment where God takes on tangible form, but fundamentally God is spirit, okay? A second incommunicable attribute, uh, an essence that defines who God is and which he does not share with his creatures, is God's self-sufficiency. The technical theological term for this is aseity. Aseity uh, means, it comes from the Latin meaning in one's self. So to say that God is self-sufficient or that God has aseity is to say that God has life in himself. In other words, he's not contingent on anything or anyone else for his existence. And not only that, God is fully satisfied in himself. Okay? So to talk about God having a saity means that he is complete by himself, has life in himself, and is satisfied with himself. And again, uh, this is hard for us to understand because human beings are not like this. So uh, one of my favorite passages, it's a sort of an unconventional one to illustrate God's aseity, comes to us in Psalm 50 where uh, God is saying to Israel, he says, um, I'm not going to accept a bull from your house and I'm not going to accept goats from your folds because every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. But listen to this next line. I love it. If I were hungry, I certainly wouldn't tell you because the world and its fullness are mine. Now that's of course poetic, metaphorical language, but I think it does express something really fundamental about God's being is that he doesn't need anything from us. God is complete. And um, I don't mean to demean anyone here, but maybe you've heard uh, sort of a well-meaning worship pastor who will kind of say in the sort of breathy prayer voice that worship pastors use that God is desperate for us or he needs us. 
I understand the sentiment, but in <laughs> if we're being technical about it, that's not true. God is satisfied in himself. We talked about the Trinity last week, this eternal communion of love and mutual delight, perichoresis. The Trinity does not create the world because God is lonely or bored. God creates the world because he loves it and he wants it to share in his delight. And so the good news is that God does not need us, but he wants us. And I think that's actually better. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17. This is another passage we alluded to last week. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that you and I had or you and I shared before the world existed. Uh, this is a glimpse into God's aseity. God is perfectly contented and perfectly felicitous and eternally blessed in and of himself. What are some of the implications? God enters into relationship with us uh, out of absolute freedom motivated by love. Uh, think of Psalm 50. He doesn't need anything from us. And in fact, when we come to talk about salvation in a few weeks, we don't bring anything to the table that God needs. God just loves us. And he enters into relationship, not under any kind of compulsion, but out of total freedom. It's a remarkable thought. And this means that God is dependable because he is never dependent, okay? This is one of the key sort of uh, applications of the doctrine of aseity is that God is unshakable because he does not depend on anything else, which is good news for us because we are radically dependent. And so we can depend on God because of his aseity. You and I, we don't have aseity. We don't have anything resembling it. We are utterly dependent in every conceivable way. We are the opposite of having life in contentment in and of ourselves. Right? But God is not like that. God is uh, a rock, as the Old Testament puts it so often, unshakable. Number three, God is eternal. Right? Uh, and this, of course, uh, if you've ever tried to think about eternality for more than like 30 seconds, it'll melt your brain. Because uh, we don't have categories for it, right? Uh, look at all these passages. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, when we hear the word beginning, we think temporal start to something. And yet, God's already there before the beginning. In the beginning, God, already there. We've already talked about God's name at length in Exodus 3. I am who I am. Sort of suggests that there's a eternality about God's character. As if to say, I am who I am. I am who I have always been, and I will be uh, who I will be. Or Revelation 1.8. Man, I love this uh, benediction uh, that Jesus speaks over the new creation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And as it pertains to our salvation, Paul makes the argument, an astonishing argument in Ephesians chapter one, where he says that God chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Think about that for a second. Just as a brief aside, have you ever thought about that before there was anything, before there was a beginning, the triune God, they were thinking about you and me. They were thinking about us together? Astonishing. Again, 
we have no analog to this. We are fatally time-bound. Right? Uh, every day we are reminded that we are slaves to time. There's not enough time in the day. Uh, this is another expression of our finitude. There is not enough time for, for us to do all the things we would like to do or want to do. And then every day, especially as you get older and this accelerates, you look into the mirror and you say, man, time is really doing a number on me. We are one-way creatures. We go from cradle to grave, not the other way around. But God, he isn't subject to any of those restrictions. So what are some of the implications? God's not timeless exactly. Uh, and he's not bound by time. Uh, this is, again, where we're coming up on the limits of human speech. I don't really know how to express this except to say uh, that God's not timeless in the sense that um, he doesn't interact with time or enter into it, but he's also not bound by it. Um, this is something that, you know, like what God is getting at, for instance, in Isaiah, he says, Hey, have, have you not heard? Did I not tell you that I decreed the end from the beginning? Right. It's as if God can sort of see all of human history at once, which of course we have no analog to that. That makes no sense to us. Another implication that I want us to meditate on together is that God's saving purposes reach back behind even what we are able to imagine. Uh, there's a very, very famous scene uh, in, Augustine's in Augustine's life where he's teaching students uh, and they're talking about the creation account. And one of his students says, what was God doing before he made everything? Uh, and Augustine sort of cheekily says, uh, he was creating hell for people who ask questions like that, uh, which is a good line. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes a similar point in his, in, his, um, in his book, Creation and Fall. He says, listen, human beings are such that we can't get behind the beginning. He says, it's fruitful to ask what God was doing before the beginning. There's no way for us to even uh, comprehend. We don't have the categories. It's a fruitless question. All I'll say here is that the Bible seems to suggest that before God did anything at all, uh, at all he had already uh, hatched a plan to be together with humanity in his saving purposes, to be with them. God's immutable. Uh, this doctrine is uh, pretty controversial. It's been interpreted in different ways throughout the history of the church. Some theologians really like it. Uh, some really hate it. It's come under particular scrutiny in the 20th century. Uh, but I want to see if together we can make some sense of it, right? The doctrine of immutability means most fundamentally, it's to say that God is immutable, which is another way of saying that God's character does not undergo change. God does not change. A uh, couple key passages, maybe some you'll recognize. This is from Numbers 23. God is not a man, it says, that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Uh, Numbers 23, right? Uh, or Malachi 3, for I, the Lord, I don't change. Therefore, uh, you, O children of Jacob, you're not destroyed. I always laugh when I read that passage. Uh, it says, if God is saying to Israel, hey, you guys are really lucky that I'm God and not one of you because I would blow you up. <laughs> I would change my mind about you, but I'm not such uh, to change my mind. Now, we need to clarify 
a little bit uh, of the doctrine's purpose. And I'm going to rely on a couple of evangelical theologians who I think have done some really helpful work around this. The first is a guy named J.I. Packer. Some of you may know that. He wrote a very, very, very good book called Knowing God. Uh, and if you're looking for a good place to go uh, after this course is over and you're interested to learn more and dive deeper in, I really recommend his book, Knowing God. It's a very good work of sort of accessible theology. And in that book, he says, what this doctrine really means is that the character and the purposes of God do not change. Um, that's a really helpful clarification because there are, uh, there are stories in which God appears to change his mind, Right? Uh, in which, for instance, uh, characters plead with God through prayer to not do something he said he was going to do or to do something to say he wasn't going to do. And sometimes it appears that God changes his mind. At least it appears that way from our perspective. That's how Thomas Aquinas explains those texts, for instance. It only appears from our perspective that God changed his mind, but his purposes never changed. And Packer's definition actually leaves us some room to suggest that God's end goal always remains the same. And yet he is open to the possibility that human freedom might mean that uh, things take a different route to end up at God's purposes. So for instance, um, I don't know about your own personal testimony, but maybe some of you have a story where you ran from God for a long time, right? My testimony is not really that way. I've got a very boring testimony. I've thought about spicing it up by adding like a helicopter crash or something. I'm still working on it. Uh, my journey to life with, with God, though it hasn't always been smooth sailing because of my profound sinfulness, it has been linear. But perhaps your story has not been linear. Maybe you've taken some wrong turns. One of the ways of talking about God's immutability is his purpose is always to be in communion with you. And whether you do that linearly, or maybe you take some wrong turns, his purpose still has not changed. And his end will still stand. That's one way of understanding God's immutability. Another way that I have found tremendously fruitful is from an evangelical theologian by, by the name of Donald Blesch. And he says, immutability uh, is not very helpful language because it, it kind of, it, it, it evokes an image of this God who's sort of like, a, like an unmoved mover. Like you pray to him and nothing really moves him, nothing changes him. He's just kind of up there, sterile and stoic. Uh, and he says, what if we thought of this doctrine as divine constancy? Now that language I think is really helpful. To say that God does not change is to say that God is constant. Uh, God will always be who God says he is. Uh, and there is no one else who can say that in the same way that God can say it. And this doctrine of divine constancy actually, I think, makes a, a good deal of sense against the background uh, in which the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures were written. God is constantly being contrasted with the gods, for instance, of Canaan and the false gods of Greece who are not defined by constancy. The Greek gods in particular, but it's also true of Canaanite gods like Baal in particular. But take Zeus. Uh, Zeus is capricious. If you read Greek mythology, uh, that is to say, if you don't have a life and we're doing more interesting things and you read Greek mythology, you'll notice that Zeus is an absolute crazy person in those stories. He's got a total insatiable sexual appetite. Uh, he's very, very violent. He's got an anger issue. Zeus probably could have used some therapy. And it's no coincidence that in Greek art, Zeus is always depicted like he is here on your slide, which is cocked with a thunderbolt. Like he's just going to blow you up at a moment's notice. And Zeus does 
Sometimes he capriciously kills people. But one of the ways that um, immutability helps us here is by understanding that God won't suddenly just turn on you. His character and his purposes, they don't change. God will do what he says he does. It's another way of expressing God's trustworthiness. He's not capricious. The God of Christian scripture is not Zeus, if I could put it that way. And part of it is because of his immutability. It's related to a second doctrine that has sometimes fallen on hard times, particularly in the modern period. And that is the the doctrine of divine impassibility. God is impassable. What on earth do we mean when we say that? Well, uh, in its technical sense, impassibility is the doctrine that God is not affected by anything outside himself. Now, the problem is, uh, some theologians have said, well, that is not a terribly biblical doctrine, and it's subject to some pretty severe distortions. Uh, Some theologians say, well, is it really true that God is not affected by anything outside of himself? If that's true, then prayer is useless. And what about all the times that we see God showing emotion, right? Um, Not only loving his creatures and delighting in them, but also uh, weeping over them uh, or grieving. God is depicted as grieving. And if God can't suffer, which is a bad understanding of this doctrine, but a very common one, then uh, is this describing the biblical God at all? Is this isn't this sort of just describing Aristotle's unmoved mover who is totally unmoved by our, our plight as human beings? Well, if we understand the doctrine in the wrong way, I think there are some good questions to ask about whether it really is biblical, but here's the thing, this doctrine, uh, I think there's lots of misconceptions floating around. You'll sometimes see people talk about impassibility as the doctrine that God can't suffer. I do not think that's a good definition of this doctrine. Because if, uh, think about it this way, if we want to talk about God as being unable to suffer, then we might as well talk about God as being unable to love, right? Because if you have ever been in a relationship where you love someone, your spouse, your parents, your family, your children, you will know that to love someone inevitably involves pain, risk. So to say that God is impassable does not mean that God does not suffer or feel. It means that he is impassable. Etymologically, it means without passions. And this is meant in the classical sense. Passions in the world in which the New Testament was written were those impulses that uh, have the ability to take a person over, make them do crazy things, and act in really destructive ways. So good examples of passions are sex, When we're in the throes of lust, we do destructive things. We're not thinking clearly. Another good example of a passion is anger. You've probably had the experience of saying a hurtful or destructive word when you are angry. Another passion is jealousy. When we're so consumed with covetousness that we'll go to great lengths to get what it is we want. Whatever. We all know what a passion feels like. Uh... A good understanding of what it's like to be gripped like a passion is if you can remember back to your junior high days when those hormones are raging uh, and you become obsessed with uh, sort of uh, getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe there's a particular girl that you're interested in when you're in eighth grade. If you can get inside that headspace, that's a pretty good approximation of what it means to be consumed by a passion. So to say that God is impassable means that he is not subject to his passions in the same way that you and I are, where we can be gripped by these things that make us do destructive 
and self-destructive things. So what are some of the implications? God isn't consumed by his passions. Augustine uh, goes on to say, as he's reflecting on the divine name as revealed at the, at the burning bush, that God is like the burning bush itself, right? He can burn with passions, but he's not consumed by them. So God is gripped with jealousy for his people and with love for them, but he's not consumed by those passions in the same way that we are. Again, to return to J.I. Packer, uh, Packer uses this very helpful language, the chosenness of God's grief and pain. So God can feel, God can suffer. The difference is he's not, off, he's not caught off guard by those things in the same way that we are, which is remarkable. So when we suffer and we're hit by grief, and perhaps many of us are right now as we're dealing with this pandemic uh, that is starting to hit close to home for many of us, we are surprised by that. We are caught off guard by it and it threatens to consume us. But for God, uh, and this makes the, the truth and the beauty of the gospel almost beyond our imagination, God actually chooses to enter into the human situation and take on that pain and that grief, even though that's not proper to his existence. Remarkable. I'll run through the omnis pretty fast because you're probably all familiar with the omnis. The first omnipresence, God is not limited or constrained with respect to spatial locations. This is the idea that God can be in multiple places at once and be everywhere at once. Not necessarily that he is. So a good example, Psalm 139, uh, where am I going to go from your spirit? This is kind of an interesting idea. We tend to read this Psalm as a sort of happy one where there's nowhere you can go where God is not actually in the Psalm. He's trying to get away from God and finds that he can't. And this is because of God's uh, omnipresence, right? Where should I go to hide from your spirit? Where am I going to flee from you? If I go to heaven, you're up there. If I make my bed, even down in Sheol, the realm of the dead, you're already there too. Uh, A good expression of God's uh, omnipresence. Or as Paul says uh, in his speech on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, God's not actually very far from each one of us, right? So One of the ways of speaking of God's omnipresence is speaking of God's imminence, his nearness to us. Uh, So what are some of the implications to, well, I think a big one for us to take away is to speak of God as being omnipresent means that God is always near to hand, even when it doesn't feel like it. I mentioned briefly last week that our emotions, our experience, it's not always a very good index to talk about the presence of God. Because even, as the psalmist says in 139, even in Sheol, the valley of the shadow of death, God is near to hand, even if it doesn't feel like it. That's, of course, also bad news if we're doing things we shouldn't be doing, right? God's also near to hand. Uh, And so uh, to express this relationship, theologians have used the language of imminence and transcendence. Uh, So to speak of God as being transcendent, as we've already done a little bit, is to speak about him being kind of beyond us and categorically different than us. But to speak of God's imminence is to speak of God's nearness to us, uh, his attention to us. And this is important. God, uh, The Christian tradition speaks of God as being both transcendent, distinct from creation, and also intimately near to it. It's very important that we get that balance right. It can be very hard to do because if we talk about God uh, only in terms of his transcendence, we get a God who is so distant that he's not interested in us and not, uh, not really interested in our affairs. This is a view uh, that emerged in the modern period called deism, which held that there is a God, but he's not close to us, and he's not really concerned about what happens here. If we emphasize God's imminence, his closeness to us uh, too heavily, we get what's called pantheism. 
Pantheism is very common, particularly in Colorado, where God is identified. It's, he's identical with the created order, right? So if you've, you've come across sort of new age spirituality or sort of weird crystal people or what have you, they'll talk about God being in the rivers and the rocks and the trees. That's not what the Christian faith teaches. God is close to his creation, but he is not identical with it. This is important because if we lose that sense of transcendence and imminence, we end up worshiping the creation instead of the creator, as Paul says in Romans 1. It's very important that we maintain that relationship. God is omniscient. He has absolute knowledge over all things, past and present, possible and actual. Uh, if you really want your head to hurt, you can go read about God's middle knowledge. This is God's hypothetical knowledge. Some theologians have done work around this. Does God know what would have happened if something else had occurred? Right? Uh, hypothetical knowledge. It makes my uh, head hurt. I don't understand it, so I'm not going to talk about it. All that is to say God's omniscience is his knowledge of all things. Isaiah 46, I am the God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning in ancient times, things not yet done, suggesting that God knows uh, how all things will unfold, and he has known it from eternity past. Uh, Another example is in 1 John 3, uh, where God is described as having perfect knowledge of all things. Again, you and I have no idea what this might possibly like. As much as we might possibly know, over these next 11 weeks, we're going to cram tons of knowledge into our brains. Uh, We're still not on the same scale. What are some of the implications? Well, this helps us to make sense of biblical prophecy, right? Where God declares the end from the beginning, right? He sets his redemptive purposes into motion and he fulfills them. It also means intimacy with God. This has tremendous implications for our prayer life if we would just get our heads around it, right? Uh, God knows what we need already, but he encourages us to enter into this uh, intimate relationship where we tell him, right? Uh, I find that tremendously comforting, right? Uh, You know, you'll sometimes hear people say, what's the point of praying if God knows it already? Well, the point is intimacy, God wants to enter into intimate relation with us. And it means that God uh, is the one who uh, holds all perfect wisdom. And what's uh, so (laughs) good news for us is that God is so generous that he shares his wisdom with us, right? Uh, James chapter one, right? If any one of you lacks wisdom, he says, what? Ask God. He's not a miser holding on to all the things he knows, unwilling to share them with us. Ask Finally, God's omnipotence. This one is also subject to some misunderstanding, so I want to clear up some ideas here. Uh, in terms of pure etymology, omnip- uh, omni is a Latin prefix uh, that means all, and then pot- uh, yeah, yeah. The, the verb is the, the Latin verb to do or to make. So God is able to do all things. So God's power is without limit. It's without contingency, meaning it does, uh, God's able to do all things provided some other things go right. That's not the doctrine at all. God can do all things uh, without contingency or without condition. God is able to execute any purpose. And here's the important qualification that I really want you to catch. Any purpose which is consistent with his character. Okay. Uh, What are some examples of God's omnipotence? Well, again, uh, Genesis 1. Think about how bonkers that story is. There is nothing And yet God speaks everything into existence. Think about the power involved. 
Psalm 115, our God's in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Essentially, there is nothing that can ultimately oppose the purposes of God. This is reflected in the divine titles, El Shaddai, God Almighty, God able to do all things. Uh, In Greek, Pantocrator, ruler of everything. Real quick, though, uh, I really need to emphasize that omnipotence is God's ability to do things that are consistent with his character. So there are things that God cannot do. Like Paul says to Timothy, even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Meaning that God ceases to be God if he, if he acts in ways that are inconsistent with his character. Okay? Uh, so this is really helpful for us to keep in mind. God will always act in ways that are consistent with his character. Even if it's hard for us to understand, or even if the meaning of God's action is completely hidden from us, we can rest assured that God will always do uh, what is fitting for God to do. I I think of uh, Genesis 18. Abraham is uh, Abraham's haggling with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. uh, And Abraham walks away from that conversation. And the last thing he says is, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? All right. With our last few minutes remaining, I want to talk a little bit about the communicated attributes of God. These are the elements and the dimensions of God's life that he shares with creatures. These last uh, incommunicable attributes that we've been discussing, these are elements, dimensions of God's life that we don't really understand. We have no experiential knowledge of his holiness, his, uh, sorry, his uh, aseity, his existence as spirit, what have you, all the omnis. Now let's talk a little bit briefly about what he shares with creatures. And again, we'll come back to uh, the burning bush uh, in Exodus chapter three. Um, Augustine, in meditating on this passage, said that God actually reveals two names here. Number one is his proper name, I am who I am. We've already talked about that. And number two is what Augustine called the, the, the name of mercy, right? He is the God who hears, the God who has mercy, right? This is verse seven. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. Those are their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. So he's the God who hears, and not only that, he is the God who comes. He doesn't just hear our plight, our suffering, but he enters into relationship, and he does something to alleviate our plight. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, he says in verse 8. All of this amounts to what Augustine says is the God whose name is mercy. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is how I'll be remembered throughout all generations. So he's got this proper name. I am who I am. And then in another sense, God's name is identical with what he does. He is the God who hears, the God who saves, God who comes to save. So let's talk a little bit about the ways that God shares his life with us. Couple words of caution here. This is from the fourth Lateran council. Uh, I don't expect you to know what that means or care, Uh, all it was was a a gathering of church theologians and clerics in the year 1215, where they got together to hash out some doctrines. Some of the doctrines will be acceptable to Protestants. Many will not. Those details are not relevant. All I want you to take away is what the fourth Lateran council said about uh, the limits of our speech about God. Listen to this. 
For no similarity can be said to hold between creator and creature, which does not imply a greater dissimilarity between the two. Which is another way of saying, listen, we can talk about the ways that human beings are like God. It is possible to talk that way, but we need to understand that uh, for all of the similarity that human beings share with God because we're created in his image, uh, there is much, much more dissimilarity. And even where we can talk about God being good and human creatures being good, we should understand that uh, we are much more, <laughs> yeah, oh, it's so cumbersome to talk about. We are much, oh, guys, you're watching my brain break in real time. Uh, let me collect my thoughts here. All right. Uh, for as much as we are like God in our goodness, we are much, much, much more unlike God, even in that same regard. All that is to say that even when we're on the same scale, when you can use the same words to talk about humanity and God, uh, we are not good in the same way that God is good. We're not holy in the same way that God is holy. Nevertheless, um, we (laughs) we can think of theopomorphisms, right? We can speak of humanity using the attributes of God, but only because God has shared his life with us. Okay. So what are some of these? God is personal. We've already made this point, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but the the Exodus three narrative really shows us that God is a personal being who has agency, right? He's not a thing. And uh, so he's self-conscious. He's self-determining, right? He thinks and he acts uh, and he wills and he speaks. So we can talk about God as, a, as an acting subject, a person. Uh, and not only that, as a person, he enters into relationship with personal beings who are created in God's image. So uh, we'll talk more about the image of God in a few weeks. But one of the things the image of God means is that we are personal creatures. We are capable of entering into relationship with other persons. Uh, another way we know that God is personal is because he has a name. Things have labels. They don't have names. Okay. Uh, You know, we do this colloquially. You might name your car or something like that. Uh, You know, I drove Patty the Passport for many years, but uh, that's not a proper name. Cars have labels. They don't have names. Persons have names and God has a name. Yahweh, he reveals it in Exodus 3, uh, which is transliterated into our English Bibles as Lord in all caps here, right? Uh, and so, uh, another point we should make here is that God's ultimate self-revelation, when God most fully shows us who he is, he does it in the form of a person, Jesus of Nazareth. So God is personal. And so you and I, we are persons because we are made in the image of the, of a personal God. So God is not personal. Like we are personal. We are persons who uh, dimly reflect the personhood of God. So we might say that our personhood is actually a pale reflection of the personhood of God. Another communicable attribute that God shares with his creatures is his faithfulness. Uh, and this carries a bunch of different shades of meaning. When we say that God is faithful, we say that God acts with integrity. And partially what I mean here is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, God always acts in ways that are consistent with his character. So when we act with integrity, we are acting in ways that are consistent with our character. And the reason we can do this is because we are made in the image of a God who is faithful. We also speak here of God's veracity, his utter truthfulness. 
God does not lie, right? And then finally, God accomplishes his purposes. This is what we mean by his faithfulness. God does what he says he will do, right? Uh, This is the story of scripture from beginning to end. God makes promises and he sees them through because of his perfect integrity and his perfect veracity. So we've already talked about Numbers 23. God's not a man that he'll lie. And not only that, uh, it's not like God to speak and then not fulfill what he says. Uh, Titus chapter 1, the God who promised before the ages began never lies. This is another theme. This is, a think again, like a text like the end of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5. The one who called you is faithful, Paul says, and he will surely do it. He will bring his work to completion. This is an expression of God's faithfulness. Uh, Yeah, Philippians 1, another example. I'm sure of this, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Um, What does it look like for us to reflect the faithfulness of God? Well, we can't do it perfectly, but we are supposed to be the kind of people who live lives that reflect God's perfect veracity. Christians are people who should tell the truth, right? This is uh, right there in the Ten Commandments, and it's reflected in Paul's instruction to the church. We're to speak the truth. We're to reflect God's veracity. So this has two dimensions. One negative, we don't lie, right? Uh, We don't mislead one another, right? And there are ways uh, to, to lie, uh, that are also technically true. And this sort of stuff is ruled out too, right? So, uh, you know, if Adrian comes home from work, my wife, and uh, and she says, did you get into the Girl Scout cookies while I was gone? And I say, well, you know, I had part of a Girl Scout cookie. That's true. I ate a part of it, then I ate the rest of it, right? So I told the truth, but I lied. Positively, it means we tell the truth, which means that uh, even when it costs us, we speak the whole truth, okay? Uh, we, of course, do not do this perfectly, not in the way that God does, but he shares this element of our lives with us. I've found a, a quotation from an Anglican theologian, Christ, uh, Rowan Williams, to be very, very helpful here. And he says, one of the ways that human beings reflect the faithfulness of God, although it imperfectly, is to lead trustworthy lives. That's a, a question I'd like for us to consider this week before we come back together. Are we living the kind of life that makes Christian wit- witness credible in the world? Or are we making it incredible? Right? Does someone look at our lives and say, hey, uh, the God whom they are uh, supposing to represent seems trustworthy. It's one of the ways we share in the faithfulness of God. God is love. What's interesting is that uh, so far as I can tell, and I think I'm right about this, but I may not be. So in your chat, if in the comments, uh, correct me if I'm wrong and I will happily concede, but I think I'm right when I say that love is the only attribute that is ever that is only directly predicated to God in the Bible. And what I mean by that is to, to predicate something uh, to someone is just to uh, put it like this. God is love, John says in 1 John. God is love. Not God is loving. And I think with all the other attributes, it's either God is holy, but not God is holiness, or not 
God is faithful, but not God is faithfulness. But when it comes to love, John says, God is love, which again tells us something very important about God's character. And it makes a lot more sense to say that God is love when we have an understanding of the Trinity in the background. Because love is an inherently relational category. So to say that God is love means that there must be an object of his love. And the triune God is in many ways a relationship of mutual love. So God at his core, because he is triune, is love, says John. Which means that because God is triune, it is in God's eternal nature to share himself. Part of what perichoresis means, the father shares his life with the son. The son shares his life with father and spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Exodus 34, God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. I love that word abounding because it's like, you can almost picture like the love kind of spilling out over the edges of the triune God to share with his creatures. Uh, man, and this is at the center of our understanding of the gospel, is it not? Romans 5, 8. God shows his love or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16, you probably know this one, so I won't spend any time here. But what about this? First John, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So the way that John is characterizing the Christian life uh, in 1 John is that to participate in the love of God is to participate in the love of the community as we're together. And brothers and sisters, I hope you take that home. Go back and read 1 John chapter 1, where he says to have fellowship with one another is to have fellowship with God and the Son and the Spirit. So the way that we enter into the triune life is precisely with each other. And man, this is part of what's making this pandemic so painful, is that we can't meet together in love in the same way. Uh, And in a very real sense, the church is our way into the life of the triune God through the love of fellowship. So even though the church can be a difficult place, it can be an ugly place, it can be frustrating, uh, and we can hurt each other in the church, it is the place where God's love is made manifest. The holiness of God. Now, you might think that the holiness of God belongs in God's incommunicable attributes. After all, isn't God's holiness what sets him apart from everything else? And on one level, that's true. But one of the, the shocking claim of the Bible is that God shares his holiness with his creatures. Uh, in Christianese, we call this sanctification. God giving a share of his holiness to us and making us holy by his spirit. What do we talk about when we, when we talk about God's holiness? Uh, the words both in Hebrew and in Greek have a couple of different meanings. Um, It means to be set apart, to be distinct from. And so when we do talk about God's holiness, we do mean that he is absolutely distinct from anything unclean or sinful or evil. And in the negative, uh, the letter to the Hebrews uses this terrifying phrase, our God is a consuming fire. This is an expression of God's holiness. It simply will not tolerate anything that... uh, seeks to oppose God's purposes or diminish God's glory. But positively, the holiness of God refers to his absolute moral goodness and excellence. To talk about God as being holy uh, 
uh, is to talk about him as being excellingly wonderful, good, powerful, right? And it's also to speak of God's righteousness, right? God's holiness demonstrates itself in righteousness. And here again, it has not been popular to talk about God's wrath, but that's an expression of God's holiness. And in fact, uh, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says that wrath is actually an expression of God's love. And so he says, if you don't want to talk about God being wrathful, you might as well give up God being uh, good and loving, right? Because what is God's wrath? It is his just response to wickedness or to anything that seeks to damage or harm his creatures, his creation. Uh, it might be helpful to think about it in the context of parenting, right? I'm not a very experienced parent. Our daughter is one year, year old, but she's now getting to the age uh, where she's figured out how to manipulate us and to be defiant. And it's weird because nobody had to teach her that. She just picked up on that right away. And now uh, she'll do things that are dangerous, even when we tell her not to, like touch something she shouldn't. And if I were to say, you know what, um, if I, you know, prevent her from doing that, and she does, she gets mad if we prevent her from doing it, she'll cry and cry, she'll throw a fit. But if I say, you know what, I'm just going to be cool parent, I'm all about love, right? I'm just going to let her kind of do what she wants, right? Well, if you let kids do what they want, they do self-destructive things, and human beings are no different. If God simply lets us do what we want... We're going to do self-destructive things and we're going to harm other people too. So one expression of his holiness is his just punishment in the form of wrath, which actually is an expression of God's love. Uh, a bad parent is someone who doesn't care what their kids do. Okay. Uh, so what are some of the implications, right? Uh, listen to what he says, Leviticus 11. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And so you're going to be holy uh, for I am holy. Now this is important. We often misunderstand this. God is not saying, Hey, listen, I want you to meet a perfect standard of holiness that only I can meet. It's not a good understanding of holiness because we can't do it. What he's saying here is you're going to be my people. I am going to sanctify you with my holiness and I'm going to set you apart for my purposes. So a second meaning of holiness is this to be set apart for the purposes of God and to be purified so that you can be in the presence of God, right? So this involves active and passive righteousness. These are terms that I've taken from Martin Luther. And Martin Luther says this, uh, you are made right with God completely passively. You receive God's righteousness. It's not yours. You didn't earn it. God gives it to you. But now that you've been made right by God, God also gives you his spirit to sanctify you so that you can, you can uh, achieve what he calls active righteousness, where you can grow in faith and in holiness. And all of it is done, not under our own power, but powered, as it were, by the spirit of God who is gifted to us to make us holy. Another aspect of the holy life that we're meant to respect, uh, to, to reflect rather, is separation from sin that ends in death, Right? James says this in chapter one, he says, uh, sin, when it is fully formed, it gives birth to death, right? Holiness involves some element of separating ourselves from sinful practices. This is what the life of faith in many ways is all about. And it means that it's the pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is good, uh, think about such things, 
that's what a life of holiness is supposed to look like. And it's all because of God's sharing his holiness with us. As we draw to a close, I want to reflect on this. What does it mean to talk about the goodness of God? Listen to what John Calvin says here in his very famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. What in us seems perfection itself actually corresponds ill to the purity of God. What he means is all the best that we can do and seems uh, the very highest standard of excellence in human beings is actually a pale comparison of the perfection of God. Hence the dread and wonder with which scripture commonly represents the saints as stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. Thus it comes about that we see men who in God's absence normally remained firm and constant, but who, when he manifests his glory, are so shaken and struck dumb as to be laid low in the dread of death. And they're in fact, overwhelmed by it and almost annihilated. So what he's trying to say here is we've been doing all this meditation on what God is like. And I want you to reflect back on some of the attributes we've already been discussing. God's holiness, his aseity, his uh, spiritual nature, his omnipotence, his omnipotence, and his, uh, yeah, his absolute unbounded power to accomplish his purposes. When you think about a human being in comparison to that, Calvin is saying, It's no surprise that in the Bible, when people see God, he says they are stricken and laid low, gripped by the terror of death. And you read those pages of scripture, you're going to see it all over the place. People almost laid low. But as a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Right? we more clearly recognize what we are, how frail, how sinful, how small when we compare ourselves to the grandeur of God. But this is where God's goodness comes in. Because can you imagine what a God would be like if he had all of these powers, these attributes that we've been discussing, and he was not good? It's a frightening thought. But the good news is that God is good. And so that in his omnipotence and in his holiness and in his faithfulness and in his aseity, he is orienting all things for our good and for our perfection, uh, ultimately, so that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is our destiny. And we do this because God is good. And even though we rightly should fear God, we don't need to be afraid of him because he is for us. Let me close our time together with this beautiful reflection from Augustine. This is uh, from his book, The Confessions. It's his spiritual autobiography, and it's actually written in the form of a prayer. So the whole book is Augustine telling his life story to God in the form of a prayer. It is so beautiful. If you have not read Augustine, uh, and if you haven't read Confessions, that is my challenge to you. Uh, and if you don't read it, uh, I'll fight you. That's not, I should have chosen a scarier threat. That's not very... Still, you should read it. Listen to what he says. What art thou then, my God? Most highest, most good, most potent, most omnipotent, most merciful and most just, most hidden and most present, most beautiful and most strong, standing firm and elusive, unchangeable and all changing, never new, never old. 
ever working, ever at rest, gathering in and yet lacking nothing, supporting, filling, sheltering, creating, nourishing, maturing, seeking, and yet having all things. What have I now said, my God, my life, my joy? Or what says any man when he speaks of you? And woe to him who keeps silent about you since many Babylon and say nothing. So what's he saying? We've just spent an hour talking about the attributes of God. And yet what is it that we've really said? And yet we've still tried to say, not, to say something so as to not say nothing. And we offer these reflections on the character of God as an act of worship because uh, he loved us and he gave himself for us. I'll see you next week. <laughs>